Well, good morning, Getwell Church. It is an honor to be with you guys here today. My name is Greg Meek. I'm pastor to Families and Next Gen, and I'm excited to continue week two as we are walking through this series called Getting to the Promise, walking through the book of Exodus. Now, last week, Pastor Hunter opened us up with uh, uh, his, he talked about God's call to Moses, the man, Moses, whom God worked through in order to bring about the release of his people. And as we read through this book of Exodus, we see that God chose Moses to deliver his word to Pharaoh and the people of Israel who were enslaved by Pharaoh. We also read that Moses gave a couple of excuses of why he shouldn't be the one to go to Pharaoh, but ultimately God gave him Aaron, his brother, to be his spokesperson. Now, I told the earlier service today that this is really one of my favorite things to teach. The problem is, as I'm used to about an hour and a half of time for teaching the Passover, and we have to condense it to about 30 minutes here, so I, I think I made it the first time. We'll try this time as well. So. But no, I do. I'm excited to be here. We're going to begin today in Exodus. Actually, I want to back up a little bit and go to chapter 7. And let's read a little bit in verse, beginning in verse 1 there. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them." Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded them. Now, a couple of things we need to point out here is I want you to see in that first verse that God tells Moses he had made Moses like a God, like God, and Aaron his prophet. That is a strange statement to tell Moses. But why does he do this? If you go into that original Hebrew there for God, we see the word Elohim. Now, this is not Elohim as in the God, the Most High. What we're getting a picture of here is God is going to be dealing more with just, than with just Pharaoh and the people of Israel. He is going to bring judgment upon the little gods of Egypt. The little, what we call the little Elohim. And so what he's doing is he's taking Moses' status so that they will understand that through him, they, the little gods, are going to see the Most High and who the Most High is, is Yahweh. We also see in this phrase here, it is that God is God who hardens Pharaoh's heart. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this. God is the one that is doing the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So we keep reading and we understand that Moses and Aaron return to Egypt. 
And God empowered Moses with the ability to perform miracles in order to authenticate the origin of the message, let my people go. One thing I don't want us to miss in this is that Moses was not only tasked to talk to Pharaoh, but he was tasked to talk to the Jewish people as well. Because at first, Moses knew that both Pharaoh and the Jews would even doubt that God sent him. Why would this be? Probably because Moses grew up in the house of Pharaoh. And Moses knew all of the Egyptian gods. He had to make the Hebrews understand that it was Yahweh himself. It was the God of the patriarchs, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was the one that was sending him on this mission. We see here this, there's a beginning of a contest of will and contest of power between the power of God that he had endowed Moses with and the magicians of Pharaoh. Now what I want to talk about when we read this word in scripture, the magicians of Pharaoh, I want you to understand these are not men that pull rabbits out of the hat. These are true sorcerers of probably what we would call black magic today that actually had evil physical spiritual powers. And so in a very short time, we see here that these abilities of Pharaoh's magicians were exhausted and the power of God that Moses, that God gave Moses, was made manifest, particularly in the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians through the mediating power of Moses. Now in all we know there were ten plagues, but the first nine is where we see this escalation of drama between Moses and Pharaoh. In the first plague we know that the water and the Nile River was turned into blood. But we also see in scripture that all of Pharaoh's magicians, his sorcerers, did the same thing by their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. In the second plague of frogs upon the land, Pharaoh agreed to let the people go sacrifice to the Lord, but once the frogs disappeared, his heart was hardened again, and he refused to listen to them. The third plague was an infestation of gnats over all the land, and Pharaoh's sorcerers, now we get this, this is the first time we see that his sorcerers could not do anything about this. But Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Over and over the plagues continue. We go through flies, death of livestock, boils, locusts, darkness over all the land. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened each time so that he would not let the people go. Remember, I said a minute ago, it was God that did the hardening of the heart. And I want to make this purpose clear. The purpose of God hardening Pharaoh's heart was to make it clear to the Hebrew people that their redemption was going to come from the hand of God himself and not from the grace of Pharaoh. That's a very important point. We then come to what we know as the tenth and final plague. And in this plague, it is the worst of all plagues because it involves the taking of human life. It involved the destruction of the firstborn of all the Egyptians, including the son of Pharaoh, who would be the heir to the throne. Let's pick up in Exodus 11. Let's begin in verse 4. 
So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will there ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And yes, these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out." God is telling Moses how he is going to deliver them. And it is in this deliverance you hear that God makes this distinction between Egypt and Israel, between the little gods that they worship and himself, who is the God of Israel, who is Yahweh the Most High. And as we move into chapter 12, God brings Moses' instructions and institutes a celebration of what we know today as the Passover. We call this the miracle of Passover because throughout our recent series on miracles, we learned that a miracle is a supernatural event which has no human explanation. More than that, it's a supernatural event which suspends natural law. In other words, God stops natural law, he moves in and does his work and then moves back out and then lets the natural course of action follow. We learned ultimately miracles are for the purpose of revealing God's glory and certainly Passover was going to be that. And rarely in scripture do you see God suspend natural law and act in a supernatural way all for the purpose of revealing his glory more so than in the Passover. Passover was a miracle. Let's look closer at this event, not only because of the impact it had in the future of the Jewish nation, but on the future church as well. Let's pick up in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 3. Tell all the, all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Skip to verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, very specific instructions. Choose a lamb from your flock, one year old male without blemish, and notice that they are to choose it on the 10th day of the month and keep it until the 14th day of the month. They get it from their flock and then they keep it from four days. Some translations say, it translates that they take care of it for four days, for that amount of time. Why is that? What are they going to accomplish here? I think the answer is pretty simple. By requiring families to care for the lambs separately from the flock for four days would help them realize that the sacrifice was personal. It was just not a nameless, faceless lamb from among many. It was a lamb that had been with them. It would live with them in their house for four days. 
They would feed it. They would care for it. Perhaps they would probably grow fond of it like we usually do when we bring animals into our home. They would see its personality and they would know of the innocence of what was going to happen. All of this was designed by God to make the sacrifice personal. Why? Because they are then required to kill their lamb. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Then they shall take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. God is requiring another specific elements here. Take the blood of that lamb and put it on your doorpost, the frame outside of your house. They're to eat that night with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. The significance of the unleavened bread, number one, leaven is yeast. It makes dough rise. They're leaving the next morning and they didn't have time for their, for their bread to rise, but it symbolizes something even much greater, not only for them, but for us. Leaven yeast symbolizes sin. It puffs us up. It causes us to have pride. The bitter herbs that they would eat were to remind the Hebrew people of their bondage of slavery for those many years in Egypt. And God says, you have these elements, you do these things and you will live. But you do not follow God's destruction. He brings destruction upon that house. Let's pick up in verse 12. Listen to this language. This is God speaking. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the what? The little gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Notice who passes through and who does the killing. It is God himself. He personally came that night to execute judgment on Egypt and on their little gods. And how was he to distinguish between the people? It was by the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb was the sign. Let's not miss this point, church. Do you think that our all-powerful, all-knowing God did not already know whose house was what? Of course he did. But he knew where they already lived. But the point of this was it took the act of a sacrifice, the killing of innocent blood, to mark the Hebrews for safety, to hold off God's judgment. The blood is the sign. Now, God's action showed that he was making a distinction between his called-out covenant people and those who had enslaved them. God's wrath would fall on Egypt not on his people. And we see that God passed over every home that was marked by the sign of the blood of the lamb. This was a sign of deliverance. It was a sign of redemption. Why? Because it meant that these people, his called out people, would escape the wrath of God. 
And as we continue through this story, as we're reading in Exodus, we understand that God did enact his wrath. He enacted it on Egypt. All the firstborns were killed. The Hebrews were passed over and delivered from that wrath. The next morning, Israel came out of Egypt, freed from slavery, freed from bondage, headed towards a life that God had promised them in a land called the Promised Land. This event is the most important event in the history of the Jewish people. They were never to forget this night and how God saved them from the bondage of slavery. Let's look at what he told them in verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. How throughout all your generations, as a statue forever, you are to keep it as a feast. Each and every year, forever, God tells the Hebrew people, I want you to remember this night. He calls it a feast and a statute, which is really an ordinance. God's giving them an ordinance here to remember this day forever throughout all their generations. Now, later on, when God inspired Moses to write Leviticus, we see in chapter 23, Passover show up again. In fact, it is listed as the first among seven feasts that the Jewish nation was to commemorate each and every year. In fact, it's called an appointed feast, and this Hebrew word moed is used there, and it literally means an appointment. God has an appointment seven times a year in Leviticus with his Hebrew people, but the very first one is Passover. It was a rehearsal for something in the future. Now fast forward 1,530 years roughly, and we find Jesus, God himself, who has come to earth, grown up to be a man. He's called his disciples, and he's done ministry with them for over three years. Like all Jews of that day, they were required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And in the Gospels, we can find and trace Jesus' ministry over the three years. We see that Jesus makes three different pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the Passover festival during the years of his ministry. He is now there in the third and final year, the one that would be his last. This would be his last Passover. He tells his disciples to go find this upper room and prepare for this yearly celebration. Once everyone is there, these chain of events start that are absolutely remarkable because Jesus then takes off his cloak, his robe, he washes the, defeat, the feet of all the disciples much to their dismay. And then they begin this Passover feast. And as you can imagine, the disciples were probably getting confused about things. Because here's the deal. A Passover is celebrated in a particular order. We call it the Seder meal today. And Seder literally means order. For over 1,500 years, this dinner, this festival, was celebrated in a particular way, in a particular order. And if you were Jewish, you would probably have this memorized. You've done it all your life. I imagine uh, most of them could have led it, each and every one of them. But in this Passover, in this last Passover celebration, you would have had four cups of wine... These are some of the elements. You would have had unleavened bread, you would have had bitter herbs, and you would have a lamb. 
all items God told them to have in that first Passover all the way back in Exodus. Remember, the bitter herbs were to remind the Hebrews of their bitterness, their bondage and slavery. The unleavened bread was to remind them of the haste in which the meal was prepared and was to remind them of their sin as well. They didn't have time for the bread to rise, so there was no yeast in the bread. They had a lamb to remind them of the Passover lamb that their ancestors sacrificed in order to have that blood placed over the door frames of their houses so that God would pass over them when he enacted judgment on Egypt. And as Jesus leads this Passover, he deviates from that meal in three different places. And the first was with the cups of wine. There are four cups. The first cup is called the cup of sanctification. The second cup is the cup of plagues. The third cup is the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup is the cup called the hallelujah, which we get hallelujah from. But Jesus comes to this second cup of plagues before he drinks it. And he says in Matthew 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is saying, I'm stepping away from drinking these cups. And I bet the disciples were like, what is he doing? His second deviation from this order of the Passover came in the time when there was a piece of bread broken. It was wrapped in a white cloth and it was hidden somewhere in the room. Passover was a family affair. You taught your kids all about this. This is how you taught your kids about Passover. You would send kids out to look for this piece of bread that was wrapped in a white cloth. It was called the afikoman, which means dessert. A child would find it, bring it back to the leader, and would redeem that bread. And so his second deviation comes when he gets that bread back, he unwraps that white cloth and he looks at him and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His body represented in this afikoman that literally means the dessert. And then it was recorded that in Luke chapter 22, by the way. I'm sure the disciples thought, what is going on? The third and final deviation from the order of the meal, it says after supper he took the cup. Luke 22 talks about this. It is the cup of redemption. And he says, take and drink all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We've heard these words before, haven't we? It's when we take what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. We're taking those elements of Passover each and every time because we're remembering something greater. I'm sure the disciples were in shock at this. Wait a minute. He's not going to finish these, these cups until the kingdom of God comes and he can drink it with them in his father's kingdom. And this unleavened bread represents his broken body and this cup of redemption represents his blood of the new covenant. But we know this story 
After Passover was over, Jesus goes to the garden to pray. And he even prays in scripture, it says, he prays to God. He says, if this be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup he's talking about is the cup of redemption. Why? Because he knows what's coming and what he's going to have to endure. Because the next morning, we find him in front of Pilate. He's beaten, and by 9 a.m., he's crucified, bleeding on a cross. By 3 p.m., he's gone. His body is taken down and buried by sundown. And I can imagine the disciples' despair. But the glory of God, another miracle, demonstrated three days later when he walks out of that tomb resurrected, alive again. So Christians today, what do we do with this story of Passover? How does it even affect us when we think through this? See, we see that Passover is what we call a typology. A typology is a method of biblical interpretation where one element found in the Old Testament seems to prefigure one in the New Testament. It's pointing from the old, you're going to see it show up in something new in the New Testament. Passover sanctified Israel's time and life as a sign in pointing them to the coming of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this feast, the Hebrews were to remember him. They were to remember what he did for them in delivering them from Egyptian bondage. But more importantly, it pointed to him coming in the flesh. Remember the story when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he tells his followers, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Israelites were to know him in the blood of a slain lamb, a sign pointing to him as the Lamb of God. Yet when he became this incarnate person and became this Passover lamb, they did not recognize him as their own, as the one God who had actually delivered them from bondage in Egypt. Israel did not see Jesus for who he was. Therefore... Us, we Gentiles, as Paul says in Romans 11, we are grafted in to the root of this olive tree, to this family of God. Why? What should we see, church, in this miracle of Passover? Here's the first point. We are slaves to our sin. All of us, every one of us, humans, on our own, have no way on our own of getting the leaven out. We're puffed up with pride. We're puffed up with our sin. And that sin is what separates us from God. Scripture tells us, they use this language, we are in bondage, we are slaves to this sin. You see the parallel? And like the Hebrews in Egypt, we need deliverer. We need a deliverer. And God had to intervene on our behalf. What is the sign that he did intervene on our behalf? The blood of the lamb is our sign. It's our sign as well. Jesus claimed something about himself that shifted his followers 
on how they saw him. And that's called the Passover lamb. He claimed to be and he became the Passover lamb. New Testament testifies to that. We get this from Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And finally, just as Passover saved the Hebrew people from God's wrath to come, the final point, we are passed over for the coming wrath. And this is where I think the church, the modern church, the global church, misses the point today. Passover for us means our salvation. It means we're saved. What are we saved from? To be saved in the ultimate sense is to be saved from ultimate calamity. The ultimate calamity is the exposure to the wrath of God. Now, we don't like to hear this, especially today in our modern world. The modern church has been so focused on heaven and getting there and the blessings you receive from that, that it is forgotten he is our Savior and he saves us first from something, and that is wrath. We love the grace of Jesus, don't we? But we often forget to teach the truth. The truth is that sin requires a price and it's going to be dealt with. We talk about heaven to the point that it becomes so routine that many have skewed the teachings of Scripture. Some people and some churches believe that once Christ died on the cross, that his death was sufficient and was effective for everybody that ever lived and that everybody's going to heaven. That's called universalism. But many forget that in the end comes judgment. Now, whether you believe, I don't know what your end times view is, whether you believe in a rapture of the church or whether you believe Jesus is just coming back, guess what? Both of them have a judgment. Both, both views. And if you are in, covered in the blood of the Lamb, you're not judged. You're given His righteousness. But for those that are not in Christ, they're judged for what they have done. The church has been so focused on being saved for heaven that it doesn't preach what we're being saved from. And that's the wrath that's going to come on sin, on evil, on Satan, on all of his forces. And we often forget that because we fail to go back to Genesis 3 when we understand that when we human beings fail, our alliance change from God, Yahweh, to Satan himself. Paul says that our nature of sin is enmity with God. That's hatred, folks. And through our sin nature and our alliance with evil, our destination is prepared, just what Scripture says is with the devil and his angels. That's the lake of fire. That's wrath. I believe we've so glossed over this in the modern church for years that we've always talked about what we're saved for instead of what we're saved from. We are saved by Christ through his death, by his blood, so that his wrath passes over us. And this is the miracle of Passover. 
And for those of us who have or will place our faith and our trust and we walk daily with Jesus, we experience his righteousness and we experience his deliverance from this wrath. I don't know where y'all are in this. You have to answer that question. Are you walking with Christ? Have you repented of your sin? Have you given your life to him? Have you placed your faith and trust in him? Only each of us has to answer that individually. But we have moments today to do business at the altar. We can ask for forgiveness. We can come in repentance. We can ask for salvation and it's a free gift that he freely gives. Isn't it ironic that we are saved by God from God, ultimately? And he says, come on, I got you. So what are we going to do, get well, with this? What is this message of Passover that we take and go forward? Because here, it doesn't end here. It's got to go out of these walls. It's got to go with the people and the persons and the places where you are and have, who God has put in your circle of influence. That's what we're called to do. We're called to go make others, go make disciples. So let's do business with him today. Let's make sure that we are secure, that we will be passed over from wrath into that eternal glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. How much more can we just be in awe of your magnificence, of your story, that we see in the Old Testament that you work through a people, a nation, and you came to be one of us for one purpose and one purpose only, that you would be that Passover lamb, that you would deal with our sin, our iniquity, you would free us from the bondage of sin and the slavery of sin that we're all born into. Help us to understand. Give us, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to be open for you and for your moving work in and through us. Whether we're here in person, online, or we'll hear this in the future, help those that hear come to you. So we love you. Lord, come and do a work in all of us as we move towards this message of Easter and we walk through this exodus away from who we were to who you want us to be. We praise your holy name, Jesus, and we ask all of these things in your name and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.